Professor Frog in here? Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Send me a kiss by You can barricade the windows, you can lock the doors. But the real danger is locked inside. We're venturing into the dark to discuss It Takes You Away. On This Week in Time Travel. So, Alyssa, this week the call was coming from inside the house. Dun, dun, dun. Well then, I am not ready. I I said this on Twitter earlier. I will say it here and now. I am not ready for this season to be almost over. Series, excuse me. Sorry, got my terminology wrong. And we're Americans. We're allowed to get away with this a little bit more. A shortened season. um, I get it. It's British television. I get it. But I'm not ready. These characters are practically friends in terms of just the affinity that I feel for them. I I would enjoy them, as my wife is fond of saying. I would enjoy watching them just having coffee together. You know, 45 minutes of coffee shop conversation. I'd almost be down with that. Between that and up until this week, I was kind of like, you know, starting to buy into some of the criticism of people wanting bigger stories, more meaty stuff and all that other stuff. You know, I'm just not ready for the series to be almost over. It's been a really fantastic series, and I've really enjoyed just about every bit of it. You know, I think for a lot of people, it's I think it's feeling a little strange because we're not having the same sort of, you know, big overarching plot that's being broadcast to us in every single episode that we were getting with some earlier seasons. But for me, this is the type of Doctor Who that I really like. And I think I have been watching it long enough now that I'm prepared and I know to expect a different thing almost every season, but definitely with every different showrunner. And I've really been enjoying the content of this season. You know, I think there have been a lot of very big, meaty, interesting, emotional episodes, and that this season has really been unafraid to tackle some very, very large, very complicated stories and topics. Some of that criticism when they say, I want something meaty, I want something... They're looking for universe-changing stakes, not serious looks at the politics and serious looks at relationships and all of that. But you can't have that every season. Otherwise, eventually, it's not going to mean anything because I'm kind of, at this point, a little over universe-changing stakes because we've had it so often and the universe doesn't change because the doctor wins and so you can't do that all the time i know i know it was like uh, in the rtd years every season ended with escalating stakes and i know a lot of people who were tired of russell c davis uh they were they were tired of that and then the moffat era starts and every season from then escalating year universe ending stakes and Now it is something different, although who knows what we're going to get with next week's finale. But when it comes to universe stakes, you know, the collapse of a couple of universes, this one was kind of a big one. It was, but it wasn't, that wasn't really the thing that was so devastating and dangerous about it. You know, it was sort of about getting trapped, about getting tricked, about having to let go of people that we dearly loved. That, to me, was really where the stakes 
were in this story. That was almost sort of a sidebar to explain why they couldn't stay, um, why uh, the doctor couldn't be as compassionate as she wanted to be to this, you know, strange, sentient universe kind of thing. I think this is the closest that Doctor Who has come actually to like giving us a kind of literal godlike figure like they've played with godlike figures in the past but Mm -hmm. this for me like more than the eternals more than the guardians more than just any other sort of godlike figure in the past really kind of feels like it you're right you're right it's a sentient universe you mean that sounds pretty much like it'd be up there, at least at definition number two or three under God. Right. Like sort of alternate reality kind of one. It's I mean, it's even more giving us this godlike figure without stating that this is sort of a godlike figure, if that makes any sense. Because with the Guardians, with Omega, with those other big figures, like they're really sort of presenting to you that like these are the godlike figures that have this sort of almost nearly unlimited power in their dimensions to change reality kind of thing like they're they're telegraphing that pretty hard this is frog in a chair and <laughs> alternate universe that's constructed to look mirror to ours this is a figure that wants to live vicariously through us, but isn't operating sort of at the same level of reality that we are. You know, this is playing with ideas of an afterlife. This is playing with ideas of some sort of all-powerful figure that defines and rules its own universe, reality kind of thing. But it does it in a very, um, very Doctor Who way is sort of the best way that I can describe it. It um, it's it's got a kind of old world fairy tale feel to some of the setup for the story. But I mean, you end with a frog in a chair, which is ridiculous and beautiful all at the same time, because it's just something delightful. This is just the pure delight in life of choosing like, yes, this, I like this, I'm going to be it for the next however so long of my existence. <laughs> I have to leap right to the end of the episode and say, when the frog bent its head down after the doctor leaves, that was such a sad frog. Just so sad. Like, I think that's kind of what I really love about this this episode is that it is not trying to be something super grandiose, you know? It's kind of simple and almost childlike in its delight and sadness. It just wants a friend. It just wants somebody people around phenomenal cosmic powers itty bitty family drama oh i'm sorry Uh, now you've quoted robin williams and now i'm getting emotional oh i'm sorry well let's uh (laughs) talk about the episode let's sort of pull you away from that place a little bit this episode turns on a dime once i think ryan follows the electrical wire to the speaker that's broadcasting the creature noises and our idea of what this episode is just completely changes. I loved that about this episode. I thought that was a very interesting thing that it's leading us to one place and takes us someplace totally different because 
mysterious, creepy creature in the forest. You know, we know what that kind of Doctor Who episode is like. We know what kind of threat to expect. And I have to say, I really wasn't getting a like parallel universe vibe before it. There is, it just does not show its cards at all until you get to that moment where it flips the script on you. I think it's very, very well done for building one sort of menace and then leading to a totally devastating other type of menace. I want to sort of lean in on that first half of the episode, the the sort of the setup, or is it actually thirds? You've got creature in the woods, then you've got alien dude with a balloon, then you've got mirror universe. And I think that each of them is its own genre of Doctor Who, and each of them mm-hmm. I think are executed pretty darn well. Um, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me really of like Doctor Who comics, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it as a compliment because it's got, I could easily imagine this episode being split into sort of three arcs to a comic series Mm. uh, that it was able to shift tone and storyline so well and still be part of a cohesive whole. Yeah. Does that make sense only to me? That's how I thought of it. (laughs) No, it makes perfect sense to me. It actually reminds me of some of the recent comics that have been multi-doctor stories that have taken place in different slices. So you've got four pages of one story and five pages of a different doctor in a different era, that kind of thing. You know, this has at least three genres working in it, and it's loads of fun for that. This is another episode where I feel like, even though it's a crowded cast, the TARDIS fam, all three of the supporting actors, as well as uh, Jodie Whittaker, get a lot of really good stuff this time around. Yeah, I think so. Though, I do want to flag that Yaz is still getting less of a focus Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, like she gets standout moments in every episode, but like really, if there's an arc to this season, it's Ryan and Graham's grief over losing Grace. Like there has been a continuing emotional journey for them throughout this series that we have not been getting really for anybody else, including the Doctor. You know, like they have an emotional story which is coming full circle by the end of this, and we don't have that same sort of growth arc um, no. for either Yaz or the Doctor. No, but she is the cop. She she demonstrates her maturity in how to deal with the daughter. She has a good scene with Jodie Whittaker in which Jodie is doing the exposition dump and trying to figure out the mystery of the solid tract and what's going on. And I'm sorry, my heart grew three sizes when Yeah suggested that she try to reverse the polarity or something. Yeah. Oh, that was my my little pertwee heart just grew so much in that moment. I love Yaz. Please give her a real emotional character arc next season, folks. Yeah. She's got all the tools, I think. It's just a question of the, I don't think Chibnall and the team really thought through what to do with somebody who's basically got it all together. Yes and no. It is a little bit harder to do that story in the context of Doctor Who because you have to explain why somebody wants to completely get away from their life. But there are stories to do with that, you know, like maybe you think you've got it all together, but you're discovering that you can have greater fulfillment 
elsewhere. And that's the story I thought we were going to go with at the beginning, because you have Yaz being frustrated that she's still being kept down at sort of rookie cop level material, that she's resolving parking disputes between incredibly immature adults who really should know better about what to do with their lives. And you get her out in the universe, and there are so much bigger things that she's dealing with. And it would be really fascinating to sort of watch that push and pull between like, I have a place here. And, you know, I don't get to handle these types of conflicts all the time. So what is my purpose being with the doctor versus being home? Like, can I also find the real issues of the day in my, you know, police job back in my hometown mm. versus I am off across the universe getting involved in interplanetary conflicts kind of level of stuff. Like there's stories there. I think the big problem for me is they're not being prioritized at the moment. I mean, they're not even really giving a priority to the doctor's sort of arc this season. You know, like it feels like in past seasons with the doctor, we've been getting a little bit more of an arc with them about them sort of discovering their identity, the kinds of values that they hold, uh, figuring out like, who is it to be this new doctor? And I mean, 12's entire first season was, am I a good man? And trying to balance sort of his new personality, which is sharp and prickly with his sort of aim to generally do the right thing and trying to figure out like, is the fact that I have to go in and make these difficult decisions in these conflicts preventing me from being good, from doing really the right thing. And it just feels like we haven't been getting that with Jody. So it's, you know, I'm waiting to see what happens in the final episode. I'm not too pressed about it at the moment. Um, Early but on, it, I thought that you were kind of seeing that as a little refreshing. I mean, I don't need... I don't want her to have the exact same arc as 12, all right? Like, I am done with the angsty, oh, oh God, am I a you know, bad person because I go out and do these kinds of things. Like, I'm done with that arc. That, for me, is just an example of having a, you know, a, a, a journey for the character, an arc for the character. And that's just the one that most recently comes to mind for me because 12 is before 13. But, like, there have been these types of journeys with the Doctor's before that they have their own sort of story and journey and emotional arc over the entire season. And it feels like I'm not getting that with 13. It feels like both Yaz and 13 are being sidelined for Graham and Ryan's emotional arc. And I'm not sure how I feel about that at the moment, but it's it's kind of making me a little... Uh. Hmm. Well, do you want to talk about that emotional arc a little bit more since that really was sort of what this episode turned on? I mean, yeah, I, we can. I, it's, it's, I think it's important to talk about, you know, I think because you and I, I think, came away with very different reactions to this story. Maybe. I was a sobbing wreck at the end of the episode, but that was more about sort of the reconciliation moment between Ryan and Graham and... The use of the word granddad felt earned and got to me, and I was a weepy mess. Um, and, you know, I probably it's, – it's been a hard few months. I finally got a good cry out of television, so that was helpful. <laughs> but 
for the episode to be so much about grief, once we are through the mirror and we understand exactly what this story is, I was fascinated by and enjoyed watching Graham struggle with the apparition of Grace and trying to figure out what to make of everything. But I was also just, I really wanted to smack Dad upside the head and back down again. And that was an entirely different level of emotionality than a weepy exegesis of grief. Yeah, I mean, I... I didn't get emotional really at all at this. I I liked the moment where Ryan called Graham granddad because you're right. It it was earned. It was a nice full circle moment for them to sort of come together and bond over their grief and sort of what grace meant to them in each of their lives. But for me, like the discussion of grief throughout it and the loss of grace and the dad's wife henna's mom didn't really like that didn't hurt because i never invested in them being real because i'm genre aware at this point and they had they i just knew that they were going to be fakes and you're right the primary emotion i felt during this entire time was just this awful anger at the dad um because abandoned her for days for days with scary monster noises playing outside to keep her in the house and made her paranoid by boarding up the doors and windows. Like, that's some seriously messed up stuff. I think for me, you know, there's two things that I came into this episode with that made me especially angry. Um, The first was I tried to get back into The Walking Dead this past weekend, uh, and I made it midway through season three before I remembered why I quit in the middle of season three last time, because they have this whole like grief arc for the main character. And I'm not going to go into spoilers for those of you who haven't watched it and still want to watch it. But like midway through this season, I'm about ready to smack one of these characters because he is making the loss that he has just experienced entirely about him. And it's not, you know, there are children who are involved in this who have also lost somebody and they need support and help. And he's just off doing these absolutely ridiculous things because, you know, and the story doesn't really interrogate this part of it, which Mm. also frustrates me because somebody at this point needs to step in and go, this is not just about you. You're not the only one who lost somebody here. And sort of combined with that is my own experience with grief has been, you know, a little frustrating at times because I lost a lot of male family members very close together. I lost my grandfather, my father, and one of my uncles in the space of a year. And one of the things that was very frustrating was to watch the sort of different expectations that play out when men and women lose people who are close to them in their lives. I had a family member, quote unquote, joke to me and several other women at one of these funerals that should he die, his wife would probably never remarry because she wouldn't have to deal with anyone's ridiculousness ever again. But that if his wife died, he would be remarried before his next meal. And there's a very sort of selfish self-centeredness that I think comes into grief for everybody because everyone has a hard time getting 
out of their own feelings to consider how everybody else feels during grief. And everybody falls prey to this. Graham falls prey to this. Even the Solitract falls prey to this because it's so desperate for contact with the universe that it cannot mm-hmm. exist with that it's willing to put everyone at risk. But both Graham and the Solitract, I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce that word, the frog. I'm going to call it the frog. <laughs> both Graham and the frog at a certain point have to come to grips with the fact that they were both being selfish about what they were experiencing and that their actions and behaviors had consequences. And also there were other people impacted that need to be considered in this scenario. And I think in pop culture and societally, we allow men to wallow in more of that self-centeredness and that selfishness in grief than we allow women to do that because there's a whole genre of pop culture that is just men absolutely losing their when someone they have loved has died. It's in all of the, you know, wife gets killed and men goes on uh, revenge streak stories. It's about stories like what happens in The Walking Dead, where man loses wife and has this sort of break with reality and he's allowed to go off and have that. Meanwhile, other women have to step up to take care of his children kind of thing. And I think the moment that like, it's supposed to make you sad, but really made me angry is in this story when the dad comes back and sees that writing up on the wall, assume dad is dead, find somebody else who can care for this girl that he realized just how messed up his actions were. And he was about to leave his daughter without either parent on her own. And I was just sitting there just like, yes, Yes, you were being selfish. This was awful, awful behavior from start to finish, my friend. And it's not even just about sort of the genre tropes that play into this, that we needed to have a switch up in the middle of the episode with the monster in the woods. So there's this story device that the father sets up a monster in the woods, which if you think about it for a couple of seconds, doesn't pass the smell test quite for me, but it's fine for the story and I love it. But like the fact that he was going to run off with this sort of mirror universe image of his wife and did not seem to care that one of the possibilities was that he could leave his daughter behind permanently without either parent. Like that's what really got me upset in this story. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he's got a duty of care to use the line from a couple of series ago. Now I felt like the episode does interrogate that fairly directly. Graham and Yaz get into an argument over who's going to deck him because he's abandoning his daughter because he misses his wife so much. Do you feel like the episode overall interrogated it enough for you? I mean, I I think probably as best as it could, it did that. I think I'm carrying a little bit more feelings into the gendered nature of it because of specifically what I have experienced. I think it's something that probably would have been written differently uh, had a woman written this episode because I think women see that dynamic a little bit more than men do. Like there is the realization at the end that he acted selfishly and there is explicit conversation of several people saying, I am going to punch you because your behavior is so abhorrent here. But I don't think it really sort of wrestles with that 
that gender aspect of it specifically, because in some ways it is playing into that larger trope. Hmm. Dad, you know, man loses wife and is about ready to abandon his daughter to live in mirror universe with mirror wife because his grief has so driven him to this point. Both of the dead people who the mirror universe, who the frog creates to try to lure these people in are wives, are women. And the people that they are luring are both men, their husbands. Like this is part of the same trope playing out over and over again, that we have a certain level of selfish and self-centeredness that we allow men to experience in grief. And the other part of this is the test for both of those mirror wives is how much they value their children. Right. And they both fail because they are not looking after the safety of their children, which is in itself a gendered expectation. They are failing as characters. They are failing as women because they are not looking after their children and their grandchildren. Like, this episode is not really interrogating the trope. It is playing into the trope a little bit. And it doesn't mean I don't like it. I thought it was a very clever story. And I thought it really interrogated how grief can make you selfish and self-centered. But there's a gendered aspect to this as well that it doesn't really interrogate. And I think we're still trying to get people to interrogate because it's something that I think women see this a bit more than men do because women are usually the recipients of those jokes of, if you died, I'd get remarried before my next meal was due. I'm... I'm sorry, I'm just utterly flummoxed that anybody would say that, but the fact that you are not flummoxed that anyone would say that speaks volumes. I have heard a lot of versions of that type of joke since you lose three male family members in a year. Also, a lot of people commenting about how the women of the family are so strong. It's just like, yes and no. Yes, we're strong. This is not necessarily like something that should be considered exceptional. You have to push forward and look out for other people because it's not all about you. There are so many other people that are impacted by death and grief. Like the fact that we have this trope of women being the strong ones in grief is kind of like, I don't want to be the strong one all the time, but someone laid this bag down at my feet and I guess I have to carry it for a little while. Yeah. So even though dad is an idiot and he is roundly regarded as an idiot, the doctor still sacrifices herself for him or tries to anyway. Mm -hmm. And if it's okay with you, that's sort of where I'd like to sort of wrap up our conversation about this episode is there's just something kind of mystical and fascinating about the characteristic that the doctors had throughout this season, uh, Jody Whitaker's talked about it in interviews, her curiosity, her curiosity and fascination with the universe, and at the same time, her affinity for her fam, her affinity for people, you know, which is very much accentuated in the 13th Doctor compared to some of their prior incarnations. That's a really fast friendship between her and the Solitract. 
You know, I think this is the doctor that's willing to make friends with everyone, you know? She's very open to it. She's very curious and wanting to learn more. Like, I very much get the sense at the end of the episode that had it not destroyed two universes and permanently separated her from her family, she would have loved to have spent days and weeks and months with the Sala Tract, you know, just to give it a taste of the universe it couldn't be a part of, and also to learn more about it, you know? It's not every day you get to have a conversation with the universe. Yeah, especially not in the shape of Kermit the Frog. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's just there's something just utterly delightful about it. And you very much get the sense that she's got a lot of empathy for this creature, that she really understands the pain and loss it is feeling and wants to try to bring it in, try to give it something, try to ease its loneliness a bit. You know, the doctor is herself presented several times as a nearly godlike figure in the Doctor Who narrative universe and is described several times as the lonely god. I think she, above all, can understand that sort of loneliness that can come with being an incredibly long-lived creature that is not able to really spend all of her time with friends because, you know, the doctor loses friends very frequently and the salt act can't have any friends because it can't exist in the same universe as any of them. You know, I feel like she's got a lot of empathy for what this uh, universe is going through. Yeah. And now we finally know where the blowing a kiss uh, scene from the trailer came from and why she was looking so sad. She was saying goodbye to a frog. (laughs) Oh my God. Just for every person that speculated, it's Susan again. I think this is the (laughs) most abrupt turnabout that could ever have happened. Like it's not even just sort of like this random character that's also fairly humanoid in shape. It's not some, you know, it's to a frog. (laughs) Lord. Oh, one other thing that I didn't get the chance to mention, it's much less weighty than the stuff of uh, grief and frogs, but the sequence in the mirror universe where in post-production, the image is flipped. And because the doctor is wearing uh, an asymmetrical hairstyle, you particularly see it with her, but also a little bit with Graham. Everything is backward. And that was just so unnerving and uncanny valley for me. I was freaked out and adored it simultaneously. Um, it, it's a very, like, simple, low-key effect that pays off immensely. Because it's just, I didn't even notice that the first time around. I just was very, very unnerved during those scenes, and I couldn't figure out why. Yeah, yeah. We haven't said a lot about the uh, about Act 2, which is the running and jumping in the cavern with the Power Rangers villains stuff. Um <laughs> It does what it needs to do. It's running jump action. It's creepy. I did like that the doctor, she didn't waste a whole lot of tears on ribbons of the seven stomachs. I thought it was a just a very effective old school fairy tale scene. You know, you've got a lantern leading away through a darkened cavern. You've got a string that's supposed to lead you through the labyrinth that ends up being cut. You have a figure that will only give information for trades, but is also kind of tricksy in how he does it, that he's looking for ways to trick people out of their goods and is not a wholly trustworthy character throughout it. Um, the flesh meat eating moths like there's a it's 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 kind of very classic in its approach and I think very effective at what it does. 
Yeah. So I do feel like this was pretty big, pretty meaningful for a penultimate episode of the series. I liked it a lot. Ultimately, where do you stand? I liked it. I think the complaints that I have about it are kind of pretty fundamental, but not anything that puts me off of the episode that I enjoy it enough. On a rewatch, um, I would definitely watch this this story again. Same here. Same here. Not quite my favorite, but it really worked for me. And now we have to look forward to the end of the series next week. Trailers that uh, imply that the Doctor knows someone or recognizes a voice, and we don't know whether it's going to be Tim Shaw at the end or something more old school than Chris Chibnall led on. Who knows? This week on The Incomparable Network. I may have passed out halfway through recording it, but I can assure you that the 100th episode, every game at once anniversary special of The Incomparable Game Show is just as out of control with or without me. Speaking of anniversaries, the 500th episode of TV reviews a third season Daredevil episode. Alas, poor Daredevil, we hardly knew ye. And Tiff and Micah welcomed some new employees to the office in their recap podcast, Somehow I Manage. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Shall we burn through a bit of news, Alyssa? Why not? Shall we give some props to Jody Hauser and Rachel Stott? Absolutely. The 13th Doctor comic is doing ever so slightly well. Issue number one is up to a third printing. Issue number two, which just came out, is already up to a second printing. I love that comic. I am not into it yet because it started while I was on campaign mode, and now I have a backlog of things that I have to do. But it's Jody and Rachel, so of course I'm going to love it. The next classic Blu-ray release has been announced. We had Tom Baker's first season, we had Peter Davison's first season, and now in early 2019 is Tom Baker's last season? What? Give me Pertwee, you cowards! <laughs> Well, they're giving you K-9 and company. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's Sarah Jane. Mm. Uh, American box labeling is just going to be bonkers. We were going to have, because over here, it's not labeled with the season number. It is labeled Tom Baker Season 1, Peter Davison Season 1. So next to it is going to be Tom Baker Season 7. That's going to be a while before those uh, Blu-ray shelves all match up. And you know, Alyssa, how important it is to me that Blu-ray shelves match up. Well, it's also going to be so long between printing. Apparently, we're playing popcorn with what Doctor Who classic seasons we are going to put out on Blu-ray. You know they're going to change the design of the box partway through, and there's just going to be one or two that don't match right in the god dang middle because they are not going to print these in any reasonable order uh so how do you feel about that season mm. you're not feeling very bid meaty bid meat is fine look i i'm not as enamored with tom baker as the rest of the fandom apparently like it's fine it's not my favorite to give me pertwee you cowards <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, uh, there was a Wild Radio Times article. Well, wild to me anyway. Many other people already knew this stuff. You already knew this stuff. I, I'm pretty sure, Alyssa. There's a list of all of the unauthorized Doctor Who spinoffs that were made during the wilderness years, some of which are just so massively ill-advised Zygon softcore people. Really? But we'll link to it in the show notes. All of the stuff that was done by BBV and other sources to try to keep the Doctor Who flames burning, sometimes with original doctors, some of whom did not want to be quoted in the article about this stuff. It's an interesting piece. If you know as little as I did about the homebrew stuff that was created to try to keep Doctor Who going. I have seen things on Tumblr, Chip. I have seen things. Uh, this is why I rarely look at Tumblr. Oh, hey, uh, Rose Tyler, everybody. The, 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 hey! The Dimension Canon, a four-part series that's coming from Big Finish next September. So we've got a bit of a wait here. And that would be four stories set during Series 4 when the Doctor was hanging around with Donna Noble and the walls between universes were beginning to collapse, and Rose Tyler in another universe is trying to find her way to the Tenth Doctor to figure out what's going on. So this is like the lead-up to The Stolen Earth and Journey's End. It's going to be exciting. I'm really into this. I'm into it, too, and it leads me to my theory. Big Finish has been investing a fair bit in the the sort of Pete's World stuff. We had the audiobooks narrated by Camille Kaduri that tell the story of the human clone doctor and her and everybody out there. And then Big Finish is doing another series. Chris Chibnall knows David Tennant. Chris Chibnall was working with Jody Whitaker, who was also in Broadchurch. I think Who Church is on the way. I think in two years, I think in two years, we're going to have a crossover that brings David Tennant and Billy Piper back in their alternate universe roles, the Clone Doctor and Rose crossing over with the 13th Doctor. I believe that the big finish is subtly leading up to that. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> And finally, I have just one word for you, Alyssa Frankie. Scarf. Scarf? She's got a scarf and it's pretty. She is accessorized for the New Year's special that is coming up. And it's a rainbow scarf. It's a beautiful scarf. And your friend and mine, Riley Silverman, linked to us on the Facebooks patterns for recreating that scarf because the scarf was sold out wherever it was offered before it sold out immediately because cosplayers will not be stopped but i want that scarf i'm working on it <sighs> accessories and that brings us to the end of this week in time travel, the penultimate one before the end of Series 11. You can find more of our episodes at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. Alyssa tweets and tumbles at Whovian Feminism. I tweet at numeral two-minute time lord. The podcast is also on the Facebooks. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar, 
Please, if you love us, review us on Apple Podcasts and consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network. Word of mouth is the best way to get out the word about this podcast, so tell all your friends about us, too. And hey, tune in on to The Incomparable in a few weeks. There's going to be a year-in review episode of The Incomparable where a whole bunch of us are going to get together, including some other folks that you know, some other folks who have been recently immortalized on YouTube as Lego figurines. Check that out, and we will see you next week for the season finale on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Let love and